in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melvartis, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host from the Lilac City of Spokane, Washington, Mr. Brian Fry. How you doing, sir? Good afternoon, everyone, or whatever time zone you are in. Good day. I'm excited, Brian, because we have joining us with us a good favorite. He's been on the show with us several times now, Mr. Tyler Harlow, now from the Big Apple in New York City. Mr. Tyler Harlow, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. Excited to uh, talk about this movie because I hadn't watched it in a long time. By the way, you can hear Tyler on the LA Confidential episode, Fatal Attraction, Asphalt Jungle. Thank you for introducing that movie to me. In line, this is, this today's movie will be very on brand for you. Now, Tyler, why don't you tell us about the After the Credits Reviews YouTube channel? Yeah, I'd been doing written reviews for a while, and those were kind of getting a little harder to keep track of and and keep going. And I'd always kind of wanted to bring myself out of my comfort zone, get myself on camera and start talking about it. That's what I did. All right. It is a lot of fun to check these things out. And if you want to see Tyler's face, he's actually video now. So like you said, your handwritten ones that you did. Are, are there, which this man has seen many movies. Tyler, as somebody who sees many movies, what's a movie that came up this year that you don't think is getting enough attention and you think people should see it? This might be a surprising one because I, I was actually kind of surprised at how much this one got to me. It's a movie that's still out in theaters right now. I quite enjoyed Gran Turismo. It doesn't really do anything to break from the sports movie genre mold. It's a really compelling story and it's a really unique angle to take for a video game movie. It's a lot of fun. Found myself really into it. I knew it was coming, but I just didn't. Now that with your endorsement, I want to see it a lot more. I, I, it was not on my radar of things like, I got to see this. So, you know, video game movies are such a minefield, even when you want to like one. And I have a few where I'm like, oh, man, I love that movie, but it was it was terrible. Now, Tyler, what is the last movie you saw? I just saw one this morning. Saw Equalizer 3. It's good. I, if you've seen the other ones, it's, you know, it's got the brutal action, but this one kind of, at least from what I remember from the other ones, this one kind of slows down and tells a little bit of a story and the, the action's kind of few and far between, which I, which I really like. Kind of let Denzel, the actor, carry it rather than Denzel, the action star. Okay. Brian, how about you? What's the last movie you saw? Uh, actually, we watched like almost all of the Fast and the Furious movies. I was trying to refresh my memory. Yeah, interesting you brought up racing. I was trying to refresh my memory because I had bought some bundle of Fast and the Furious movies and it included the future release. And so I just had Fast 10 drop into my library and I was like, I know they go to space, which is, <laughs> which is extra, but I don't care. And, uh, and I, the last one I remember, you know, it was cars fighting a submarine. So I was like, ah, what space? <laughs> I feel like both things happened in a Bond movie somewhere. So I shouldn't nitpick too bad just because the rocks in it doesn't mean I should nitpick that bad. Okay. Last movie I saw actually, Brian 
was at your suggestion. I saw the movie About Time from 2013. That's a lovely movie. It was. I really have to say that ex- that exceeded all expectations I had. I just went in being like, Brian said to watch it, so I will. Domhnall Gleeson has fallen into a, a very Adam Driver place for me where I'm like, even if it looks like a movie I'm not going to watch, I'm going to watch it anyway. And today, what movie are we going to be covering, Brian? We're going to be doing 1951 Strangers on a Train by Alfred Hitchcock. This movie stars Farley Granger, Ruth Roman, Robert Walker, Leo G. Carroll. Its budget was $1.6 million. It grosses $7. million domestically. And in 1951, that's a big hit because it places at number six on the box office that year, just behind a street card named Desire and ahead of Captain Horatio Hornblower RN, which is, that's a interesting title when you know nothing about the movie. And the number one movie was Kivadis. Hitchcock needed a hit here. He got one. The film was highly successful at the box office in relief because Hitchcock's previous four movies, The Paradigm Case, Rope, Under Capricorn, and Stage Fright, had not been box office successes. This is a revival, if you will, or a breath of fresh air for Mr. Hitchcock. And he goes on to do great movies as well after this. This is before Psycho. This, this is definitely needed to keep him going, to keep him strong, and to keep his name having that big cachet. IMDb gives this movie a 7.9. The critics of Rotten Tomatoes give it a 98%. The audience score gives it a 92%. It was an Academy Award nominee for Best Cinematography, the Director's Guild Award of America nominee for Outstanding Direction, and a National Board of Review Award nominee for Best Film. The AFI named this movie on the Top 100 Thrills list at number 32. Tyler, had you seen this movie, Strangers on a Train, before? I had. Basically coming into college, Hitchcock was my favorite director. I tried to, you know, really, you know, dive into his filmography and see the hits as well as some of his, you know, smaller and and lesser known movies. And I mean, he has lesser known movies than this. But I'd say this is kind of in the middle of like what his big movies are and then kind of what his lesser known, almost experimental movies are. So I think I had, it had been a long time since I'd seen this, so much so that I remembered the basic plot, but I kind of didn't remember a lot of the the mechanics of where it was going. It, it was good to watch it again. It didn't stick with you as much, but do you feel like it's holding up to today's times as a viewer? Like this is worth this is a movie still worth watching. Oh, I I think absolutely, and I it, it's kind of a crutch to lean back on. But I mean, he is the master of suspense. He knows how to make a lot of scenes. And a lot of his movies suspenseful. He knows how to tap into like our fears and our paranoias and kind of really bring that out on screen. I mean, I, I think a lot of thrillers could really learn from a lot of his movies, including this one. Mm-hmm. Brian, how about you? Strangers on a Train, have you done this one before? Uh, no, this was the first time with this one. In fact, I had uh, previously purchased uh, one of those bundles I was talking about of Hitchcock's films. And it's, you know, it's one of those things where when you go on a binge of some of these things, he is one of those directors that is is very versatile in his films, but they're all Hitchcock films. So it's kind of like the same but different sort of piece. So whereas you watch Psycho and stuff like that, that that anxiety causing piece where he get does his thriller thing is all very Hitchcock. So, you know, there are definitely parts in this movie that we'll talk about where that happens. I was disappointed because I was like, man, I thought I had this already. 
<laughs> you didn't have because I burned through like it must have been eight Hitchcock films, and I was like, I oh, you know I had to have seen this right, and then it turns out no, I hadn't. So really had a good time with it. I'm always excited to watch a movie that I've never seen before. And you know Tyler's right; it does have that you know in, invoking feel to it that is so characteristically Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. And this is comfort food for you both, I, uh, Tyler. Like I said, this is very on brand for the movies you've selected for the show. This is your <laughs> this is your spectrum here. These crime mystery thriller here, and Brian, this is your ground zero as well. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. It was a fun movie. So I, I'm with you guys as far as being a fan of Hitchcock, but I'm not as versed with his work as you guys are necessarily. Uh, this was a first time view for me, and I have to say. As usual, Hitchcock left me going like, wow, this guy's really good. So this movie made me wonder why I haven't heard of it. Clearly, the AFI is pushing it at putting it up there at number 32 on the all-time thrills list. So they definitely did their work to to put it in front of me. But I never hear this one mentioned as, as much as you do like The Birds or Psycho Psycho, or Dial in for Murder or North by Northwest. North by, yeah, thank you. Suspicion, Rear Window. To Catch a Thief. You know, there's a lot of these. He's made so many movies. It's funny when you can have one that's this good, which was a hit, somehow fall down the list just because you're so good. It's like being the Beatles. It's like, you know, <laughs> the Beatles are so good. They have so many great songs. It's just keep going down the list and you're going to, like you said, you're going to leave out a Beatles song. So it's a very exciting watch. There's a special touch that he has with his presentation that adds suspense. And it's amazing how much a tennis match, for instance, can all of a sudden be like, I'm excited right now. And it's not about the tennis. It's just something about the way you're presenting me and showing me this. I feel on the edge of my seat. And I think you're right, Tyler. I think people could learn a lot from what Hitchcock did. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. And if you haven't seen this movie, you're going to want to see this movie. You don't want this one spoiled for you. So we will be back after these messages. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason, and this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. All right, we're back, and this is your final warning. For those who haven't seen Strangers on a Train since 1951, Brian, can you give people a refresher? Up-and-coming amateur tennis star Guy Haynes is enjoying a train ride to his hometown. During the journey, he meets smooth-talking, subtle psychopath Bruno Antony. Over lunch and drinks, they discuss Guy's life and a similarity they both have, needing someone dead. Bruno suggests the perfect murder would be one where he and an accomplice would switch kills, so there would be no no motive, and it would be the perfect murder. 
Thinking this is just an idle yet strange banter, Guy leaves the train to go about his business while accidentally leaving his lighter on board. Arriving in his hometown, he is blackmailed by his soon-to-be ex-wife, whom, in anger, he confesses he wants to kill because now she won't let him go for the money. The movie flashes to Bruno following the wife of Guy as she goes on a date with two gentlemen and finds an opportunity to kill her, proceeding to strangle her. Guy gets word of the murder through the senator father of his soon-to-be fiancé. Bruno shows up and confesses to Guy that he has fulfilled his end of the bargain. Guy refuses, and Bruno begins to stalk him around Washington while dropping leading conversations and even going so far as to start to strangle a guest at the senator's house while having a flashback. During the party, after seeing Anne's sister, who resembled Miriam, the wife he had already killed, this arouses Anne's suspicions, and she confronts Guy, who spills the whole situation. Guy is being followed by the police, who still see him as the primary suspect. Bruno sends Guy a package containing a map to his father's house, a key, and a pistol. Guy quickly agrees and goes to the house to warn the father, instead only to find Bruno in his father's place. Guy confirms that he has no intention of killing Bruno's father, and Bruno tells him that of his intention of framing Guy with the lighter he had left on the train. Determined to stop him, Guy plans to finish his tennis match quickly, slip off to the murder scene, and stop Bruno. The match runs long, and Bruno has holdups of his own, leading it to a confrontation and fight between the two on a carousel. This led to Guy surviving and Bruno dying, and a witness exonerating Guy and the lighter damning Bruno. All right, all right, that's a good plot summary. And Tyler, let's get into this here. This movie makes you feel uncomfortable pretty fast, doesn't it? Like, they just set the mood right away. Like, you see shoes, shoes. They're walking on a train. It shouldn't be this tense, but it is. It is, and it's, we were talking before this, we were taught from an early age to not talk to strangers. Bruno Antony is just devilishly compelling to talk to, to listen to, like, the movie goes on even as you know kind of what's happening you're just listening to this man talk and you understand why so many people get pulled in to him get pulled into whatever it is that he's selling whatever's coming out of his mouth i'd actually forgotten how quickly the plot of this movie actually kind of started oh it's fast maybe it's the the film school in me but i i always look at runtime of movies just out of curiosity. And I saw that this was like an hour 40. And I was like, oh man, this gets in, gets out, does what it needs to do. Like that, and it does. And so I, maybe I shouldn't have been as surprised that the movie starts as quickly as it does. It does just such a good job of pulling you in. Even, even with Guy, like Br Bruno draws you in right away. I will admit, it took me a while to get to, to kind of get into to Guy as a character. But yeah, no, just it, it's one of those like joking conversation, like the plot kind of like it's a joke to one character that you like the kind of like, ha ha, what if, you know, you have when you have a couple drinks or, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But then it turns into something so much more sinister. Yeah. Chad texted me right away when he started this movie. He watched it before me and he said, I've never been so uncomfortable in the start of a movie. And I said, <laughs> said like, good uncomfortable or bad uncomfortable? He's like, I feel like my personal space has been invaded as a viewer of this movie. <laughs> like, because Bruno is just so close and in his face when he approaches him. So I can actually see 
Chad's an introverted person who doesn't want to be like next to somebody, some stranger up the train and come talk to him. So there's a funny part of this now that I can't stop imagining our co-host Chad approached by Bruno on the train and having him be like, no, I don't like this. <laughs> so you're right. He is compelling, but there's also something very off-putting about him. There's a Pierce Brown quote that after I read it, I sent it to John Flack, also a contributor to the podcast. The Godfather. There is no greater plague to an introvert than the extroverted. We, 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 growing up, I'm sure he lived that given my personality and his. So, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you could see it on his face and, and, you know, this was a different time too. I feel like you have less likely options to strike up a conversation with someone truly, you know, introverted on a train these days without them telling you to buzz off then guys subtle politeness you know he wants to be a politician so i mean there's some some extroversion in there to to a certain degree either that or he has no idea what he's getting into but you know his willingness to politely talk to this guy that's just running off the rails it's gone too far several points in time where i think anybody today you know you're your light bulb the red light would go off and be like i need to end this conversation like five minutes ago that's kind of like, I got there like three times where I was like, man, you really should have. You should have been like, oh, I'm not hungry. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, and we have heard this story enough where obsessive people are over fascinated with celebrities. He is a famous tennis player. And I think that notion of at this time would have been, I don't think that's as much to be expected or to be guarded necessarily. Maybe it would have been, but John Lennon hadn't been shot by a crazy fan at this point in time, for instance. I mean, you know, there's a number of things that happen, you know, Sharon Tate getting murdered and things like that, that, you know, crazy fan isn't necessarily on the viewer's expectation list in 1951, I don't believe, for a famous tennis player. So this guard that would likely be there today of like, I, I really can't get too close to you, that's not there. So Brian's right. Like, guy kind of feels a little more like a regular guy that's engaged this conversation. Obviously, Bruno has a ton of information about him that makes him makes you feel very quickly uncomfortable. It's weird how Bruno kind of sticks through that as opposed to being like, I am flat out out of here at this point. Bruno tries to recover with, by being polite and being like, well, we've got to eat lunch together. And boy, guy would have saved himself a lot of trouble by waiting 20 minutes to eat in the dining car. <laughs> so... <laughs> You're right. He's a he's a really interesting blend of charismatic, but when the those little snaps hit, you know, later at a dinner party, he's enchanting people, and the next minute he can't help himself. Like he snaps when he sees some thick glasses on a woman, and he starts to strangle somebody. He like and just like all of a sudden loses it. You know, you left out what he was doing when he had his little breakdown. <laughs> oh well, he was talking about how one should strangle somebody, which was a joke that was being interpreted as a joke but yeah with bruno it's not a joke anymore so <laughs> yeah there's another one though like where they're at the tennis club her sister walks in the main character's sister um not miriam barbara's the sister Anne's the girlfriend yeah Anne, barbara's sister comes in she has these thick glasses and he loses it he's a, he's enchanted everybody at the table but then he just loses it he has these snaps that pull him out of it and these are these moments that make you go, wow, what a complicated character because this isn't necessarily somebody who can even control when he snaps. And it's for someone, for a character who likes to be so much in control as well, 
the moments that he does lose control make it all the more terrifying. Yeah, and he's also creepy. And the more we spend time with him, the only creepier he gets. I mean, he has daddy issues and mommy issues, it looks like, doesn't he, Brian? <laughs> yes, yes. In fact, I think his mom is one of the best characters in the movie. This combination of mental illness and aloofness that she's cultivated as well is, is fairly haunting. I think it's funny to watch him sitting there getting his nails clipped and filed by his mother and sitting there going like, whoa, that's really messed up. But, uh, you know, he truly hates his father with a passion. And I even think when his mother unveils a painting in front of him and he just laughs in an unhinged, very discomforting way, like much too hard. And he goes, that's a perfect picture of father. And it's a very like, it doesn't look like that's not a flattering picture. I think she was saying I wanted to paint St. Anthony, but um, Bruno is so broken and it's not just like a hey I, i'm a calm guy and i just want to turn to murder like i'm not like a sociopath where i'm totally under control the whole time like jake gyllenhaal like a la like nightcrawler or something like that this is an interesting psycho kind of character that i can't think i've experienced too much and i don't know if it's a real typology or if it's just for the movies but i found that really interesting that they had these big swings of nah this guy's dangerous crazy weird but then also had the ability to draw people in, but also couldn't control it either. I'm thinking back on movies I've seen. That seems pretty unique. Yeah. And it helps. I obviously have to take some time to think about this. I think that's what makes him such a memorable villain for the movie as well. And the memorable, uh, just in the, the decades of bad guys, I think that's what makes him probably one of the better ones. And I don't know if that's just because, you know, I just recently rewatched it and there's been a lack of decent villains for a while in cinema or if you know that's actually true but i think bruno might be one of my favorite villains he's not on the afi top 100 villains i was surprised by that like when we did devil indemnity barma stanwick's character was on there and deservedly so by the way but i think bruno's amazingly like like you said this is a really good villain character obviously anthony perkins from psycho he's very high on the list i'm just kidding he's top five so it's just because of the smile at the end, the smile at the end that just like chills me to the core, but that's okay. I, I don't know. I just feel like Bruno's on that level. Maybe I'm overpraising Robert Wagner and his performance of Bruno here, but it's, it's truly chilling. Now, I think it was interesting. You said you had a hard time connecting to Guy. I also had a hard time connecting to Guy too. Let's talk about Guy for just a minute here. He's kind of angry and dry and withdrawn that he's a harder character to wrap your hands around. Or wrap, sorry, wrap your arms around. I think that Guy is an interesting character because a lot of quiet people do hold on to too much and then it erupts into instances like what happened on the phone. I could just strangle her. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I mean, no one yells all that stuff, especially after five minutes ago, having a conversation about murder with a, you know, creepy dude on a train. I just feel like that falls under the, uh, huh, this has come up twice in one day. This probably shouldn't be something I should be doing over the phone. He gave her a good shaking in public, too. I was was going to say, I think that was after the public display of where he was like... But but back onto the piece where we're talking about like quiet people harboring too much animosity and that sort of thing, leading to these sort of eruptions and that sort of thing. But, you know, they talk about it with his tennis game. You know, they're saying, like, he's usually this quiet, wait and see what happens. Like, he doesn't really go for it in that sort of way. And uh, I feel like that the, the mirror image of that is in his tennis game. So you, you kind of have the character and it, 
basically the announcer is saying he's boring and he is kind of boring. So, I mean, that's, that's, I think that's why people have a hard time latching onto him as, as the good guy or the hero, because you're like, ah, bam, he's kind of boring. Yeah. And it, somehow this movie doesn't suffer miserably because of it. Guy's not that likable. Like I said, like when he lost his cool and starts shaking Miriam in public, even the people in the back, I was sitting there going like, well, this is 1951. I guess this sort of thing's okay. But no, no, there was some old guy who came over there. It's just like, this is no place for a domestic quarrel. This is 1951, but you can't shake your lady in this glass booth like that. Take it outside. And I was like, oh, okay. So there are, there are some limits to what you can do in 1951. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so guys, a hard guy to totally root for and obviously you don't rooting for him to fail but his degree of not opening up you know i think i think some help could have been put in here had he opened up to Anne sooner there was some frustration i had with that and i know he was trying to protect her dad but i feel like she's not actually the senator and the famous person in the family so i wish there was part of me that was getting frustrated with guy on that but you get frustrated when the pretty girl runs upstairs and a psycho murderer is in the house in a horror movie. Like these thrilling movies aren't necessarily done for 100% logical nature. They're done to build suspense. Bad decisions have to be made along the way in order to cook into this. And furthermore, we've all been on the spot sometimes where you end up saying something that might even be a lie. And you're like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. And then you end up really getting in deep. And so you realize your hands are tied. And then you realize, uh-oh, this is all spinning wildly out of control. And this is going to be hard to recover from. So when you slow down and give it that bit of grace, actually, it's working incredibly well. I just find that it's so interesting that this movie can work as well as it does without a particularly lovable protagonist. And I got to say, Anne's not necessarily like she's not so warm and endearing. And we don't just connect with her in such a way either that we worry about Guy transitively through Anne. That is one of the things that upon watching this a little bit a second time was like, wow, I'm still invested, even though I don't really love this guy. That's kind of impressive. That would normally be a deal breaker. It's interesting, too. You almost feel like he has, at least I felt this way, that he had more of a relationship with Barbara than he did with Anne the way that some of her reactions toward things and kind of how they were around each other. I thought they kind of had like a unexplored relationship as well. I mean, there may not have been anything there like romantically, but I, they seemed a lot closer and friendlier to each other than he and Anne did. Yeah. Anne's character is a little bit wooden. Barbara's character is remarkably not wooden. What a good character for a female role to have in 1951. You know, obviously his daughter is this is actually Patricia Hitchcock. So this is the director's daughter getting this role. But it's not necessarily nepotism, as we'll probably discuss later. But she owns every scene that she's in. She's so good. Whereas the other two lack personality. It's really nice to see her. She nails it. The bad guys in this are really good at being bad. The good guys, I'm not sure, are great at being good guys. But Barbara is good at being a good guy, if you will. Like, we like her. Like, we connect to her in a very real way. So... Now, William Holden from Network was originally set to play Guy Haynes. Now, he's Mr. Take Control, so maybe he couldn't be put into the situation some people have said, but we covered Network earlier this year, so obviously this would be a younger William Holden, but Tyler, do you want this with William Holden? I don't know that I do. We've kind of been dragging Farley Granger and his character Guy through the mud. Weirdly, I think the movie almost worked better the way that he played the character like I, I i like that we're allowed to kind of be frustrated with the character i think if someone like william holden had played it we might not have had that in the movie i guess his awkwardness is part of the character so robert wagner was always the first choice for hitchcock to be bruno this guy's amazing 
he, they went out to another studio from MGM and got him. So worth the get here. In her interview, Farley Granger, though, revealed that uh, he loved They Live by Night, which was 1948. Farley Granger said that he loved working with Robert Wagner, again, the guy who played Bruno. And he was really upset because, unfortunately, he loved working with Robert Walker and was upset when Robert Walker had a sudden death just eight months after this film was made. So we don't get a lot more Robert Walker after this. So he dies too young. But boy, thank goodness he delivers this awesome performance here. I don't want to go too far and reveal too much, but I mean, he's what makes the movie work so well. He, like I said, he makes Bruno such a, I mean, he's, he's just one of the, one of the more compelling psychopaths in, in a movie that you've really seen. And I think that he gives him such a unique person that he, he can be menacing when he wants to. And it's believable menacing, like the, the switch over into some of the more menacing aspects. It feels true to the character along with just how pleasant and nice he, like you absolutely believe that he could be menacing, but also win over an entire room of people and somehow get out of strangling a woman. Absolutely. The other bad guy who's very good at being a bad guy that we haven't brought up yet, the character of Miriam, his ex-wife, who's, uh, no, she's actually his current wife, played by Casey Rogers. This character is carrying somebody else's baby sleeping around on a high profile celebrity guy and just staying with them to continue to absorb his money. And she says it right to his face. My goodness. Can we come up with a much more despicable female character? She's, oh man. If anybody did make guys sit there and go, I want to strangle her. Boy, she earns it. it she, when you meet her, you think, how bad could she be? Bad is the answer. Brian. Yeah. <laughs> Brian, this strikes me as this kind of person who you, you sometimes say she needs to die in this movie. <laughs> it, and it's true. Like you, you find people like this where you have five minutes talking to them, like I think in real life, and you'd be like, mm, I need to be away from you now. <laughs> uh, she really was. I mean, you want to talk about just the worst. And you take a little bit of comfort in film. Where they, you know, I don't want to say they painted on the wall, you know, what's going to happen, but you're like, oh man, you're going to die. <laughs> and you didn't, you kind of need to. So that, that's like after the entire uh, let's talk in here scene, I was just like, oh, oh, <laughs> you're going to get it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I mean, Bruno did a little bit of public service. I mean, the whole blackmailing him into <laughs> killing his father thing was pretty despicable. But I mean, she she needed to go. She was bad. She was bad. She's very bad. Even right up to when she's there was no explanation. She was on a date with like two guys. Yeah. With two like, two guys. I was like <laughs> They were okay with it. While in front of them, also kind of flirting with Bruno. Flirting with yeah, with third guy. And neither of the two first two guys were like, hey, wait a minute, this is our date. Because he and I, we're going to be with her later. And not you. I'm not okay with that. Like, so. So strange. It, it was for strange. Time. Especially for this time. Like, it'd be weird in a movie today. It's really weird in a movie in 1951. Exactly. exactly. It's very subversive. I almost thought, like, it couldn't get any weird. In fact, that's more unweird that they just didn't acknowledge it than had one of those two guys looked over at, like, Bruno, like, when he hits the uh, the, the, the game and, like, knocks the thing up and wins the, wins the teddy bear, <laughs> like, after stepping in when they couldn't do it. It would have been even less weird had they looked as, like, well, maybe he could join us, too. <laughs> So the other guy looks at him like, hey, yeah, yeah, now it's a party. Yeah, now it's a party. You're a strapping guy. 
He's and, like, hey, I like our odds tonight. No, I mean, like, this is just weird. Like, <laughs> the unspoken nature of what's going on here is very weird. And it's even more uncomfortable that they don't explain what's going on. And the just the weirdness of whatever happened in the tunnel of love that was just right. kind of played out, that whatever was played out in shadows. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a 1951, like, fake jump scare. So, yeah. Brian's right. Like, you know it's coming. And somehow, this is just Hitchcock for you. We, I, I've said it once already. I'm going to probably say it more times in this show. But when you have to off a character who already has to die and you know what's going to happen, somehow, we don't even like this character. You want her to die. And yet, Bruno's just following her, stalking her, like, you know, and her two dates. The whole thing is really, like, how is it this tense? Like, I somehow found myself forgetting, like, oh, I don't want her to die. And then after it happens, like, I guess... I'm strangely all right with it. So to <laughs> yeah, I I, re- I read a book recently too, where once they introduced all the characters before the killing even starts, I was like, you know, outside of the two people working at the retreat that they're going to, I'm really okay if the killer just goes through all of them, like just you know, then catch them and put them in jail. Like you know what I mean? Like do your public service, jail. I, I think the the suspense in this scene is there as well because you don't know what bruno's actually like you don't know if he's just following just to follow or it does a good job playing with the oh is he actually gonna do it because there's no indication of him kind of like looking ahead to plan it he's just kind of following and staring at them very creepily i think he's just looking for the window you know sometimes you can't plan for the oh look she's alone on an island in the dark at an amusement park. Ah, this works. <laughs> <laughs> he just keeps following her until he gets her alone, which when you have two dates is really impressive. And he's not being that sneaky about it either. Let, let me use my lighter near your face to make sure you're who I'm here to kill. Oh yeah, that's you. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, not being sneaky about it. Like somehow it's even creepier that he's just stalking behind her, not saying anything, kind of looking at her. And she's like, this guy's into me. All right. <laughs> so I also thought in a cut scene, deleted scene, can you imagine those two dates getting interviewed at the police station? All right. Now tell me your story. Okay. So we were dating this girl. Wait, I'm sorry. Both of you? I don't which, think, which I don't one, think which, they were dating. I think. Which, which, <laughs> which, one, which, which one of you was going to be with her? And they both we raised were. their hand. They both raised their hand. It's like, I don't understand here. Can you go back to the beginning? And the other guy's like, stop asking questions about what they were doing that night in the station. <laughs> it's like, I don't understand. I don't think you want to. Just get back. To, can, can we focus on murder now, please? <laughs> um, no, I really want to nail down into the dynamics of whatever was happening. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a, you, you know, a love triangle. Yeah. Without the love. <laughs> <laughs> We're just a triangle. We're just a triangle. <laughs> As I mentioned, though, Alfred Hitchcock refused to treat his daughter preferentially. I really enjoyed reading some of these stories. Uh, you know, she had said that she wanted to be in a lot of his movies because uh, she, I think it was interesting, Patricia Hitchcock said that she wishes her father had had some nepotism. She had some amazing movies and some amazing roles, and she wanted them over the years. But when he came to her and said, do you want to do this? Uh, she was like, yeah, absolutely. Uh, she was surprised. They never discussed Strangers on a Train at home. When they were on the set, like afterwards, it just was, you know, he would give her criticism like everybody else. He treated her the same as everybody else. Patricia Hitchcock said that I mean, she may as well have been 
Jane Jones. Didn't matter. That was pretty interesting and not very Hollywood-like. My first thought was when I saw her name on there, I was like, well, yeah, her dad. But apparently not so much. Which considering the, you know, the kind of other unfortunate horror stories that you kind of hear about Hitchcock and how he was on set, for him to not be a face of nepotism, it's like, well, at least he didn't do that. But Hitchcock was big on having correct casting at the time. You know, he said it had to be his audiences had to sense qualities in the actors that they just didn't have to be spelled out. So he really put a lot of thought into who he cast. And I have to admit, his casting is phenomenal, whether it be Vertigo or whether it be Psycho. It's just it's so many of the ones that they're all amazing. All of them that I've seen. He gets these right people who just nailed the emotions. Even when he reuses an actor, Jimmy Stewart is different in Vertigo than he is in The Man Who Knew Too Much. So, I mean, it's really interesting to me what he's able to find in that casting that he, again, he nailed it so great with Robert Walker. So it's one of those things where noticeably the casting is really, really good. And he did not want Ruth Roman for Anne Morton. He had objections to her. He said that she was bristling and lacking in sex appeal and the studio foisted her upon him. So harsh words in in, in an interview, but I have to admit, I did say this already. She's a little bit wooden herself there. Anne's character is one of those opportunities who's not a guilty party of having gotten into this in any way, shape or form and isn't doing a lot of lying. She doesn't come off as the sweet, vulnerable character who basically we care about Guy just because of her. And that doesn't work. It doesn't happen here. I was expecting that to happen. Maybe Hitchcock's right here. The studio really wanted him to use somebody who was under contract with that studio, though. I think that they are equally boring together. Like it's they're they're two boring people that that get together to have fairly boring life. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I, I know that sounds horrible, but it's just they're, you know, meh, you know, it's just it's very beige they have a very beige relationship but the really key part is she believes him she trusts him and she wants to help him i think there's a lot of relationships that aren't beige where you know one or both neither trust each other if this scenario happened one or both just washes their hands of the whole thing and walks off so there's a lot of loyalty there and and that's refreshing i also like that there wasn't some overused granted this is back in 51 so it wouldn't have been as overused back then but you know thing where the senator is like yeah you shouldn't be with him he's trouble you know there there aren't tropes where i was expecting that to come i was really expecting that to come yeah the dad was supportive too and when you have a powerful man who uh, doesn't want himself to be a victim of gossip and, you know, add more trouble to his plate, you know, he's very likely to, to hire someone to take care of guy, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I kept expect, I really expected that to come. So, yeah, I mean, he doesn't fall into some of the traps. I think that, you know, you could have used to make it an even spicier story. And and I appreciated that, that they kept it kind of on point and you have some characters making some decisions that you didn't see coming. And that's, that's worth it too. You're right. I'm imagining Anne and Guy on a date being like, could you pass the Melba toast? Yes, please. Yeah. And could you, here, have some more water. Thank you. And like, like just talking in monotone. It's going to be the most exciting part of the relationship. Like a, yeah. after this, after this culminates, like there, it's going to be a Sunday or, you know, morning paper, you know, kids ringing the, the bell on the way by the house. Like it's going to be vanilla AF after this. Oh, for sure. For sure. Oh yeah, I was I think that's one of the things that we kind of forget about the way the studio system was set up back then was actors, writers, directors under contract. So, you know, I I think that's why sometimes there are some of the weird casting choices 
you know, you obviously see the same actors and actresses in the same movies from the same studios because they're using their stable and studios don't really have that now, at least with actors. I, I, I know that there's like directors that prefer to work with certain studios, but yeah, the, you, you don't really have that aspect of the studio. They probably went to Hitchcock was like, here are the actresses at your disposal. Choose one. And he was like, none. And they were like, too bad. <laughs> so, one of the things that really stunned me was Hitchcock bought the screenplay, the original novel, anonymously prior to making this movie for just 7000 And the author was pissed? Yeah, for just $7,500. Then Hitchcock brings in Raymond Chandler for his last screenplay. And we have covered Raymond Chandler before. He is the one who would have written the Philip Marlowe character for The Long Goodbye, which we covered. And he has also did Double Indemnity, which we did earlier this year, which is a phenomenal movie. If you haven't seen that, absolutely do. Yes, do. So Raymond Chandler, this is our third go round with Raymond Chandler. And it's one of his last that he's done. I'm getting the drift that he, I thought Billy Wilder was just a colorful character in what I would read about Double Indemnity. I no longer think that. It looks like Raymond Chandler is a pretty colorful character himself. And once again, Chandler and his director didn't get on that well, did they, Tyler? Not at all. So much so. And I reading about the script writing process on this was very interesting because by the end of this, Chandler's original script was really nowhere to be found in what we end up seeing on screen. And for all their disagreements, Hitchcock and Chandler did agree on one thing, that Chandler should not have writing credit anymore just because of how different it was. But the studio wanted to use Chandler's name to sell the movie, so he retained the screenplay credit over arguably the two people who probably should have. Well, he shares with one, but then the other one just kind of only got an adaptation by uh, credit. Yeah, he is credited, as you, as you said, of the script, but it was completely written again by Chesney Ormond. And I wasn't sure if you said that they wanted the name recognition for Raymond Chandler to write it. I did wonder also, Chesney's a woman, by the way, how much of that is 1951 being like, nice job, woman. Here, man, take credit for all of this. Followed by I a mean, bad high five. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, and, then they, and then they all laughed. <laughs> it's one of my favorite Simpsons moments of all time when Homer has to go through sexual harassment training and there's a poster in the background and says, good high five, bad high five. <laughs> Simpsons, uh, dude, it's it's the like it's. I, I wish I could actually just buy the poster and put it up in my house. <laughs> Good high five, bad high five. Part of their main contention, though, is just Hitchcock really was focused on the presentation, the visual style, and Raymond Chandler didn't like that. He was more motivated in the characters and then the visual development and what they were focused on. And they're both focused on things that they are masters of doing, and they just rubbed each other the wrong way. We saw this in Double Indemnity with Billy Wilder and him, and it happened again here, big time. I'm such a big Raymond Chandler fan. I, I'm not saying I'm taking sides in this or anything. I think they're both fantastic. But H Hitchcock is. I mean, I, there's an atmosphere piece that Hitchcock is very well known for, whereas a lot of the Raymond Chandler stuff, uh, you know, he's more of a background guy. He wrote the books for a lot of this stuff. So you get to put a lot more into a book than you do into a film. So he's less about the idea and, and more about the, the body. Yeah. He, in an open letter to the studio, said that he preferred to work with another director who realizes what he said as a writer was more important than shooting an upside down through a glass of champagne. And the two men just had very different styles. And he didn't like... Hitchcock had very sociable meetings where he would ramble off topic and would 
have long conversations for even an hour before getting into something. And Chandler would just say this god-awful jibber-jabber sessions and just couldn't deal with Hitchcock's, I would say, I guess, conversational meeting style. And then Chandler was also a hard drinker and was not necessarily the most reliable person in terms of doing what he was supposed to do. So even under the best of circumstances, he's a little bit sketchy. Well, a couple things on this. One, I've worked directly with Raymond Chandler. Right. No writers. <laughs> uh, but, but you know, this is more local. So like not big time writers, but, but a lot of local writers, the arrogance and the, I mean, we're talking about people who are not nationally known. They're, they're truly local writers. And the, the idea that you know, I've written a book, you're, peasants all like it, it happens it happens so quick and i'm not saying all authors are like that I've, I've worked for with some wonderful people but man i've i mean you want to talk about undeserved sense of accomplishment now you take guys like raymond chandler who are immensely successful writers i mean we're talking about you know i think he has a half dozen books that if i listed them you'd be like heard of that heard of that you know name recognition whole nine yards and it's been a long time since he's you know published it's one of those things. And then you get Alfred Hitchcock and and we've watched and heard about and read about all oh, he's got an ego too. These, these director. Yeah. Director egos. So, you know I mean? There's that too. So you've got two personalities, two successful personalities. And, you know, I hear about it all the time on horror stories about, you know, authors who have gone to studios and sold the idea for their characters. And then after everything was made, they were like, Oh my God, look what they did to my work. You know what I mean? So I can't imagine in all of Hollywood, a more contentious relationship than that of the, the creative writer and the director for who's responsible for shaping a large body of work into an hour to two hours worth of film content. Like that's, yeah. that's, it, it's set up to fail already because like, in my opinion, who reads an abridged book? In this case, he's writing the screenplay. So it, I mean, that is his job right. to be the, to be the bridge of the content. And he didn't write the original story. He, he actually said it's a silly little story. He thought it was tawdry and seedy. So, I mean, sure. Hitchcock did have trouble getting, he tried for John Steinbeck. He tried for Thornton Wilder. He wanted a big name writer, but he had a hard time selling us. We saw this with Double Indemnity. It's amazing the time period dealing with the seedy underbelly and the gritty nature of the murder and all these things of people just don't always want to touch that. And that, that, that would have been here too. I mean, we haven't talked about this yet, but I mean, they show a murder on screen. It's in a reflection of glasses. It's somewhat obscured and stylized, but Tyler, in my watching of movies from this era, generally these deaths come off screen. Like mm-hmm. you're a gunshot, then you cut to somebody like holding their, their gut. Or you see a shadow and, you know, like the knife sinks into the other shadow's back or something. On screen, certainly strangulations like this. That's, that's pretty, I mean, that, that's wild stuff, isn't it? For 1951? It was, but I think Hitchcock in particular liked to do things a little differently. I think, I think it was Psycho was the first movie that was, had a flushing toilet. Where you know, like the he he liked to put stuff that usually took place off screen on screen. So like two I, I guys dating would... one girl at a at a carnival. <laughs> <laughs> That's still weird. I'm telling you, like you want to talk about something that almost took me out of the story too soon was just like I know that they were really angling for the vibe for her, but I as soon as she, I mean she left that house holding both her hands, giggling. I was like. Wow, they didn't even mess, like they didn't even try to make no. it subtle. They're just like like all he needed, 
All he needed to do instead of threatening her in that box was immediately go outside, call the Senator and be like, Senator, I need a guy to follow her and photograph. She is not subtle. It'll take (laughs) five days tops. You could have all the documentation on the planet that she is stepping out on you, that she has no proof that I'm the father. We can do this completely legally. End of story. Her reputation will be complete garbage. That's where I get my happy face. And we move on about our lives. Now, granted, he didn't know she already had a stalker who was going to kill her. But I'm, I'm just saying, like, this is not a hard thing to prove adultery. Like, this would have been, he could have done it that day. He could have gone to a, a store, bought a camera, and proved it immediately. Yeah, I would say, would, would they even need to spend the money to hire somebody? Yeah, there's would no subtlety there. The money? He could have gone right for it. Yeah, he, he even has means himself. He could have gone a private yeah. investigator himself because he's very, I'm assuming, if you're playing spectator tennis, you know, you, you probably got some good money, right? Not senator money, but I mean, I don't, good yeah. money. I mean, I would imagine it would be somewhere in the ballpark of like, am, well, I don't know, amateur basketball didn't get paid much, so. No, basketball, basketball players in the 50s are like, you know, you better have three other jobs. Yeah, I would say that he may have, I think he had friends. I think he had wealthy friends. She alludes to to the whole tennis circuit and the wealthy friends and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that there's, yeah. there's, I, I don't really know outside of modern day endorsement deals, which didn't really exist the same way back then. I, I'm not sure where the money comes from in the game for an amateur tennis player at that point in time, I guess is what I'm saying. I'm sure he's not poor. Digressing, though, to Hitchcock and Chandler, Chandler even yelled out his window because Hitchcock was getting out of the car. He's a portly man. And Chandler yells out his window, look at that fat bastard trying to get out of his car. Ha! The secretary warned him. He's like, I think Mr. Hitchcock can hear you. And he's like, I don't care. (laughs) So that's that is is very if if you if you read a, a Raymond Chandler book, that is very quintessentially Chandler. So, I mean, he died in. 1960 he didn't have a whole lot of life left after this movie was made so this is probably a guy for all intent and purpose did look down on alfred hitchcock quite a bit because he was at the end of his life he's already been successful hitchcock's viewed as eight more years eight more years he dies in 59 you're right but okay but i mean still in, in end of his successful life middle of hitchcock's successful life you know hitchcock goes on for 30 more years of this so you know i'm sure there was a uh, i am the seasoned person you should listen to and hitchcock is the I, you know i'm the new thing and you're just a has been he's not whatever. a new thing so, though like the, i don't know they're just both they both have their established egos i mean certainly they're both proven at this point so yeah i guess hitchcock's like 50 yeah, he's got Yeah, it. He, I guess they're they're probably pretty close to age. But Chandler said afterwards that the original novel was superior to Hitchcock's version. He argued that it should be restored, and he complained privately that Hitchcock was too ready to sacrifice dramatic logic for the camera effect. So there were several changes that were made to the original novel. Bruno was actually named Charles, and Guy was an architect, not a tennis player. I think it's more exciting. I can't think if you had to have an architect sitting at a drawing board oh, uh, with the T-square and a triangle. Like, you don't have a very tense scene, like, like with no tennis, the tennis match. The, t- the tennis aspect of this was, was huge. I mean, you want to talk about... Uh, just because it pertains to this, I know I, I go to this. This is, this is at the top of my bag a lot when I'm making this point. But it's like the mist. Like the ending, you know, Stephen King's end of the mist, and then there was the film's end of the mist. Now the film, 
not as good as the book. The ending, way better than the book. Stephen King's even said it was better than the book. So when you have one of these ideas like, hey, let's do this instead, and it is better in a, a really meaningful way, which I'm not going to say the tennis thing is is absolutely necessary, but it's it is exciting. huge. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's a great because he's got to get out so, of there. He's like, he can't like leave. It draws yeah, attention to what he's yeah. doing. He's he's like, again, nobody wants to watch me work at my desk for yeah, and back and forth of, of yeah. the guy's delay versus Bruno's delay. Like that was, you know, there's a give and take there that is excellent. So yeah, that's excellent. That's, that's, that's a good switch. Now, granted, I've never read this book, so who knows? Maybe they did something. I don't know. The merry-go-round scene was not from this book either. It was taken out of the climax of another book called The Moving Toy Shop from 1946, written by Bruce Montgomery. We need to spend about five minutes on that merry-go-round because there's there's a lot to unpackage with what happened there. So, Well, it's a major part of the movie. We'll, you want to uh, go now? Yeah, why not? Tyler, it's, it's a it's a pretty exciting scene, though, isn't it, Tyler? Can you imagine this movie without the merry-go-round either? I mean, like that's a big conclusion. No, and I... I also love that they actually really had a guy do that. Crawl under the merry-go-round. Crawl under. Yeah. Would... It looks like it's going pretty fast, by the way. like yeah. I don't think of merry-go-rounds actually being dialed up to 11. But it is. It, it's very old movie fast. You know what I mean? Like, Are you sure? Like, It's not like Bond on yeah, Thunderbolt. Yeah, like, it, do you it, think it's like it's, that? Yeah, exa- that's exactly what I was thinking of. Bond on the massage table in Thunderball or the, the chiropractic table. Like, That's exactly what it reminded me of. Okay. That's funny. Your sped up film, by the way, is the same. We have yeah. the same bad, bad sped yeah. up film memory. <laughs> it's, it's it's specifically where my head went was the massage table in Thunderball. But it, no, it's fine. It's I can see that now too. It still all works though. And I, I'd actually kind of forgotten, like it had been a long time since I'd seen this. I remembered the merry-go-round scene, but I forgot that it collapsed at the end as well. And so when that happened, I was like, this is kind of like, a big stunt for a movie that didn't really st- like it's kind of like a swing for the fences ending for a movie that was kind of more about the intimate cat and mouse between the two characters but it still kind of worked and lent itself well to the lighter reveal i, I love the cojones on uh, guy can i search him for the lighter no you may not like <laughs> I'm, I'm well, it's, glad you- it's, it's such a weird thing like i, I would have come right back with are you gonna do it <laughs> Like, you are going to look for the thing that I'm saying that will exonerate me. You're going to do it, right? <laughs> I was and just the, the confusion with the guy that does recognize Bruno, where he was like, no, 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 I didn't mean that guy. I didn't mean the one guy that was spinning around furiously on this thing. I meant the other one. <laughs> That's kind of funny, by the way. It's amazing how he can add a little bit of humor. Ken Chirac, that is. Humor, tension, and excitement. And somehow it all just, he hits, he hits the balances so perfectly. And he even saves a kid at the end while all of this is mm. going on. Love it. Yeah. God, there's so much to unpackage here. I'll go back <laughs> to one other thing that I remembered. He's talking about framing him with a lighter. Two seconds after he tosses a house key with his fingerprints on it and the gun with his fingerprints on it on the bed. Now, I, I'm not sure when fingerprinting became a thing. Oh, they had that by this point. So I'm just sitting there thinking like, my guy, all you have to do is get a glove, shoot the dude, say you saw guy coming out of your house in a hurry, and automatopoeia, you've got your murder. Then go plant the lighter. 
I actually would have left it in the sewer grate. 1892 is when fingerprints are first used in criminal cases. So I would have left the lighter in the, the sewer grate that he you know, put it in there. They said, hey, can you get somebody to remove the sewer grate? Not find the cigarette case, but they find this lighter. That puts Guy at the location, maybe not at the exact location of the murder, but it puts him at that fair. So I'm like, you could have framed this guy, whether it's, it may have been more circumstantial than he wanted to. But you could have framed him very convincingly for both murders. His train was so frustratingly empty. There was one dude who was too drunk to remember it later, which was a good like that was a good twist not to have that pulled out from under you later. But I was sitting there going like the dude's a famous tennis player. Like the guy loading the bags in the beginning of the movie says, hi, guy, like I've got money on you. Like, how did nobody see this guy on this train? Right. Like, I wish it had at least been like, I'm going to turn in now. I'm going to my sleeper car. You know, like, like just I needed some little piece of like, how did nobody see you? How did the ticket lady not see you? Well, I mean, but here's my thing on that. Like, I don't know how you ever count on anybody for an alibi like that. You know what I mean? Like if you're in another city or on a train, you can't be somewhere else. If all it takes is visual contact, did you see this man? Yeah, I did. Yeah, he well, was they, sitting across from me on an airplane. Right, but he could have showed up, torn the ticket, and then gotten right off the. I'm saying you have to have an eyewitness saying yes, he was physically on it while it was moving for that to be a thing. I, I understand that piece of it, but the idea that a ticket handler who hates their life and like, do you remember this guy? How the dude? I get. 50 of these a-holes every 15 minutes for 50 trains during my shift. How on earth? They don't have as intimate of a relationship as today's TSA does. So. Uh, I, I'm just saying like, it's, it's ludicrous to me. Even the professor who's drunk, I'm like, dude, even if he wasn't drunk, like, did you talk to this guy on a train? Maybe. I'm sure. Maybe. Like he murdered someone. I can't swear to it. They do try to logically explain it away in the movie by saying like oh you could have just gotten on later like it doesn't it, do, it doesn't matter if you like sure you were probably on the train you could have gotten on it later i think that if you're going to be the murderer you've got to have like a very very strict adherence to that piece it's harder today because you know everywhere has cameras and that sort of thing like even barnes and noble so brian's saying don't murder somebody at his place of work and he's thought about it. Yes, please don't. But, he's, but it's because of the cameras that it hasn't happened yet. And we need the power to go out. And we're waiting just for that right moment because of the cameras. I just think it's wild to expect anybody to ever remember you. That's fine. Maybe that just sounds fatalistic. But I just, even if I was in a completely public setting for the entire 24 hour period of when this could have happened, to expect anybody to ever back that up is is even in today's day. Like I have to hope that the cops are good enough at their jobs to place me where I said I was, even if that's where I was. You know what I mean? Like I I truly find that amazing. We have Hitchcock as a director. Hitchcock isms are a big deal. You let's talk about what what is the magic, the special spice that Hitchcock's bringing here. It's definitely in the the cinematography. As I said before, he's the master of suspense. He knows how to tap into that primal, what makes us kind of tick and squirm as human beings. And so that really gets into, I mean, as Brian was saying in the beginning, like there are so many like uncomfortable moments in that opening, but it's all part of drawing you into it. It's all part of, so that when you get some of these 
suspenseful situations later, like when Guy goes to kill Bruno's dad. I'm putting that in air quotes or, you know, anything like that. You're just that much more invested. You're that much more on the edge of your seat because he's already tightened that screw into you the longer and longer it goes on and especially like i mean you you kind of guess that something's up when he says that he'll follow through on his part of the deal but you're still like oh is it what what's going to happen and that that's what really makes you know his movies succeed in my eyes and and again the cinematography there's there's some fantastic shot we talked about the the murder and the reflection of the glasses and everything like that like that was just i mean it's it's a studied shot in film schools now like that that's just how good it was and is yeah there was a large reflector on the floor to be able to do that so the camera was on one side of the reflector and robert burks i guess the cinematographer was on one side and, and hitchcock direct the actress rogers to turn her head back to the floor and like they were doing limbo it just like went badly and then rogers thudded on the floor with several feet to go but on the seventh take she just nailed it smoothly the way he had uh, said it and he just calmly said like cut that's it and like you said it just was one of those things where it was a hard shot to get to, to be able to capture that in the glasses it doesn't seem like you could do that in 1951 we, we covered metropolis earlier this year hitchcock does things with his camera that make me go like i didn't know you could do that back then like the scene where, like the the whoosh, zoom in on Anne's face. That's a very cool camera effect. Like when she walks in and Bruno is losing it when she sees her glasses. There's so many good glasses shots in this. And again, I didn't think conventional film could do some of this stuff. And he does it. So it's amazing. One of those things that comes up you know, pretty often, uh, especially comedically when we talk about guys like Michael Bay and the the car blowing up and flipping <laughs> in a certain way that he does in every single Michael Bay movie. It's like, Michael Bay, explosion. So all of these guys have their things. And I feel like you find your favorite directors because you're you're into what their things are. So Hitchcock clearly had his stuff. Tarantino clearly has his stuff. I mean, I think the really... the the whether you love them or hate them, most directors who really have clout for being the top of a specific type of directing have a thing or multiple things that make it very quintessentially very distinctive. If you, if you gave me a movie and gave me no credits for it whatsoever, if there are enough of those things in it, I will easily be able to tell you who directed it. And it's that kind of fingerprint that really, like, if the film has a fingerprint, then it probably means it's a fairly successful director who is identifiable if you watch movies the way we do. I thought it was neat that Farley Granger said that Alfred Hitchcock would work out all of his shots in great detail on paper before ever shooting, before he even, like, was on the scene making the movie or anything like that. And he would look bored on the set sometimes. And Patricia Hitchcock, his daughter, did say that he would do that in order to focus on the actors when they were shooting the films and that he would say the film's already been made in my mind before filming ever even starts. So uh, that vision, like you said, that control and that vision, obviously Raymond Chandler might not have liked that, but it's amazing. And it clearly pays high dividends. He gets what he wants with great effect. And sometimes you have to shoot it, you know, several times over in order to do it. But I thought another funny story that Patricia Hitchcock said that, that they put her on the Ferris wheel at the fairground set that they had created. In exchange for doing it, he told her he'd pay her $100, a lot of money in 1951, and that she didn't want to do it. She's scared of heights. They sent her up to the top, 
and they turned out the lights and walked away for lunch and uh, left her up there at the top of the Ferris wheel. I guess over time it got exaggerated that she was up there for hours, but it really wasn't hours. She said it was nothing too sadistic about that. The only thing that was sadistic about the act was he did not give her the money. So he stiffed her. So just kind of uh, linking it back to what we were talking about with Hitchcock. It took me Stanley Kubrick to appreciate Hitchcock. Like I found Kubrick before I found Hitchcock. I mean, really, I think I said birds. Like I went through the, I don't want to say the standard Kubrick phase, but there's a point in time in a lot of people's lives where they have a dalliance with, with Stan, Stanley Kubrick's work. I mean, it's weird. It's, it's excessively weird. And once you kind of have that, I feel like if that's your gateway drug to directors, then you are much more willing and apt to identify directorial quirks within a frame of certain films. I could probably name four or five Kubrick films. If you've watched those five films, you're going to be like, yep. And then if same thing with Hitchcock, if you've read or watched these five films, yep. Like, you know what that is. And Hitchcock threw himself really into the details in this movie. He had an intense interest on seldom considered details. He put all the trash in the actual storm grate where a guy was reaching his hand down into. Food was a big deal. His preferences of food. There was an interesting quote that says, I've always given a lot of consideration to that my characters would never eat something out of character. Bruto orders with gusto and interest that he's going to eat lamb chops, french fries, and chocolate ice cream. A very good choice for trained food and that the chocolate ice cream is probably what he thought of first. Bruno is a, rather a child and that's something he is bit of a hedonist and guy on the other hand shows little interest in eating lunch and has apparently put not much thought into it so he just has a hamburger and coffee i mean this is a digging back end of details for hitchcock in this movie and it is a big part of what makes him work so well in the future and it is very interesting every little story that you have there's this is just some of many of them he has created it so distinctly in his mind and then he is synthesizing that into the actual camera it's amazing to see that creativity but also the ability to execute it I think it's, that's that's astounding. The really telling line from that train lunch is, "Thank you for lunch." Oh, I thought the lamb chops were a bit dry. That I feel like that is the new money talking to old money because Bruno is very clearly wealthy. You know, throughout the film, I mean, he's in that Hugh Hefner garb <laughs> through most of the back half of the movie, and clearly comes from someone who can say something like that. Where the other guy's like, "Hey, thanks for buying me lunch." <laughs> <laughs> which is very much a I don't put thought into like oh that was that was a bit dry it just seemed like such a very like snobby thing to usher through yeah on a meal basis yeah now we also get some on-set locations this is uh, 1951 you have a lot of movies that are being shot pretty much exclusively on the studio Hitchcock gets out of the studio you know he actually shoots at Penn Station he actually creates this amusement park fairground that we're actually seeing. This is in Chatsworth, California, that they set up. They shoot the Tunnel of Love in a different park somewhere else. But the New Haven Rail Station is in Danbury, Connecticut. It's actually a museum today that you can go see. So the Metcalf Station is actually a railroad. It's pretty much unchanged if, you, if you're if you interested in seeing that, if you love an old train station. But these are moves that are either expensive or not always done at this point in time. And I have to say, that's another thing I love. We're getting more real. And when you start looking at contemporary movies, a lot of interior shots of very nondescript rooms that very much feel like nondescript sets. and They don't have a lot of place. We did Maltese Falcon. It's an amazing movie. It lives in the dialogue. Because for a movie that's in San Francisco, it's dealing with this crime, like this. there's a texture to it. 
the scenery that, that you experience in that movie offers nothing. It's all on the acting and the lighting and the camera perspectives. Here, Hitchcock brings atmosphere, and I think it's fantastic that he does it. And he, he does such a good job. I mean, there's a studio work here for sure, but way to go there. Sure. He's just playfully funny at sometimes, almost morbidly funny in his movies too, which I think this is one of his funnier movies at times, but also one of his more thrilling ones as well. I thought there was an interesting one where Anne and Barbara were waiting to talk to Guy for a phone call and Hitchcock wanted the phone in the foreground and they couldn't get the cameras to focus on that limited field of depth. And so Hitchcock had an oversized, gigantic, huge phone built so that they could place it in the foreground so that when Anne reaches for the phone, it's like actually a regular one. She pulls it up to her head, but there's actually a giant phone in the foreground. And I just thought that was one of those funny movie magic moments of, I need you to build me a giant phone. Why? It's like, do it. <laughs> so so I can do this shot that's in my head. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, the problem solving of not having computers is, and, you know, or newer equipment is just amazing to me. Are you guys familiar with Stephen Lynch? I believe yes. that's yeah. his name. Yeah. The comedian? Yeah, the comedian. Guy on the yeah. couch, half big. Yeah. Yeah. He has a very dry sense of humor. Most of his stuff is predicated on stuff that some would call a dad joke in ways, you know, like my neighbor has a circular driveway. He can't get out. Like it's stuff like that. And there's a stoicism to Alfred Hitchcock where I like I have a very difficult time imagining him laughing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But there's a humor to him. And and I think the humor comes out, but I don't think it's ever a visually no. understood thing based on his face. And I, I use Stephen Lynch not because I think they're similar, because they're wildly different people. But given that dry humor and the stoicism piece, like it connects in a way for me where I look at Hitchcock and I'm like, I bet people who know him really well find him hilarious, but he never breaks Hitchcock. Like he's got a brand, he never breaks. Yeah, it's the prestige with the big lip. <laughs> hey, well, no, I was saying like I'll be, I'll live my entire life being able to hold a giant fishbowl in between my bowed legs for the craft, and that I like. If you told me Alfred Hitchcock never laughed in public, I'd be like, I believe you. Like, it's, there's just something so on brand about him. Tyler, let's talk about the music here. Carnival music is one of the things that always comes up to the people's minds here the most. I mean, it fits. It's, um, like I said, the plot of this movie is almost kind of, it's almost kind of like a circus, almost. Or carnival, you know, like that kind of, I'll be honest, this is one of those movies where I think the music fits so well that I almost didn't even really notice it at points. I don't recognize any of these now. The band played on or Oh, Oh, you beautiful doll or beer barrel polka. Like these are apparently hits from the twenties and teens. These were well-known songs, even in 1951. This is my jam. Yeah, exactly. So I have a hard time relating to these as classic tunes, but um, nevertheless, I think one of the coolest things is when Bruno sees Barbara at the tennis club, it zooms in on her glasses and you hear that like carnival music flashing back to his murder. So it's that cue of what's going on inside of Bruno. The music's used so, so well there. There's also an actual score. Composer Dimitri Tompkin was Jack Warner's first choice to shoot Strangers on a Train. And while he previously had uh, used him on Hitchcock on Shadow of a Doubt and would go on to score two more Hitchcock films, again, studio people telling you what to do, 
they just didn't have much kinship and they didn't really work together that very well. And so the score is said to have picked up on the theme of doubles, contrasting doubles like tennis with doubles and building up on title sequences of Bruno and Guy's shoes doubling back and forth. And so uh, I am not the orchestral aficionado that we once had with Nathan on the show or with uh, with Dustin here, but the mood is working for me so well. So usually when the mood's working for me that well, usually the music's a big part of that formula. I think that there are some great musical scores, and I think music does do a good job. Even in this one, I think it does a good job but i was so wrapped up in the plot like i I think the only time i actually did notice it was with the glasses scene that you pointed out everything else i was just very much into the like i'm sure that there was music playing during the cross-cutting tennis and lighter down the great scene but i was so invested on oh no is he gonna get is he gonna get out on how's he gonna get out of this i didn't really even notice and I think that almost makes the music better. Guy has a theme that's more passive, made to order for like Farley Granger's performance. And Bruno gets a vigorous musical treatment. He has harmonic complexities and motifs that go on there. There's bass clusters of glassy, stringy kind of harmonics, disturbing sounds, basically. So you're right, Tyler. Like it, When you slow down and read about it, you sit there and go like, oh, there's a lot of thought put into this. And... I did not catch any of it the first time. And even when I was looking for it, I get so caught into the movie, it all goes together. It's almost like when you're trying to get the ingredients off of a really good meal, you're like, uh, do you taste the cinnamon? It's like, I don't know what I taste. It's just delicious, man. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't in front of my keyboard for it, but there was one point in time in the movie, and I want to say it was maybe just after he leaves the the wannabe ex-wife. Miriam. 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 Sorry. Beatrice. The terrible woman. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Mira, there's a a point in time where I was like, the music here doesn't fit what's going on right now. It was the only time I could remember. And I remember like earmarking it in my mind to say, hey, there was a point in time the music took me out of this, but it was fleeting. But one thing I did want to bring up, just since we've mentioned it so many times, and I know I'm new to the, the Disney and Pixar world with a little girl. We've got to mention that we don't talk about Bruno, right? Like, I can't sure. tell you how much during this movie, when he gets brought up, I'm like, shh, we don't talk about Bruno. Don't We don't talk about Bruno. Like, I, I okay. it's so fun. Like, I, I get seeing it now is this is not something that ever would have happened in the history of film. Anybody talking about this movie. But man, I'm telling you, that popped into my head at least six times during this movie. When he gets mentioned, like, oh, we don't talk about him, man. I'd be lying if I said it It didn't at least bring a smile to my face every time. Oh, this is Bruno. Don't talk about Mm-mm. him. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Don't mention him. Oh. Come on. So you guys want to hand out some superlatives? Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> All right. Tyler, who is your MVP of Strangers on a Train? So I've been going back and forth on this because whoever's whoever's not my MVP is going to be my best supporting. Like I, there are a couple of characters that I really really liked a lot. I'll give the MVP to Robert Walker. He's great. I, th- I think the movie. Speaking of, you know, we we brought it up many times talking about you know the casting and how important it was to the movie. I don't think that Bruno would have been as menacing and as threatening of a villain without his at times almost playful portrayal of a clear clear psychopath i'd give it to robert walker 
It's a great choice. Brian, who's your MVP? I went with Alfred Hitchcock on this. I'm not sure I would have enjoyed this movie in the same way I did without the Hitchcockisms that are loaded throughout it. And it's this is no disrespect to to the the character portrayals. I just think that that without Hitchcock at the helm of this, and actually it makes me happy that uh, Raymond Chandler had a hand in it too, just because I'm a fan of his too, no matter what their animosities were. It really culminated for a film that's worth watching. So no matter how hard it was to make it, under you know, it, it's good for them to understand that people enjoyed it. Yeah. My MVP is going to be Hitchcock as well. I, I just can't not tell you how effective he is at getting me into these movies. Like I said, there's moments that are reaching into a storm drain. It doesn't have to be that exciting, but it's amazing. He makes it very exciting. Waiting. The time that we take on the tennis court could seem like, it seems like you and an editor would just hack this thing up, but no, it makes you as an audience member wait. It holds you in suspense. He knows you have to be somewhere. You, you know, you're cutting back and forth. It's, it's, it's very good. Best supporting, Tyler. I'm going to go with Hitchcock's daughter, Patricia Hitchcock. She's great, isn't she? She has so many funny lines in this movie, too. And there's just like a, I don't know, a, a playfulness and innocence about her character that I found very refreshing in a movie like this as well. I, I don't know. She just... Like I said, I was going back and forth between her and Robert Walker for, for my MVP. So I, I at least... Wow, MVP even. That's impressive. Yeah. So I'll, I'll go with Patricia for my uh, supporting. She was great. Brian, how about you? Best supporting actor. Uh, I went with, with Walker on this just because I do think that that's... I mean, he's he, he's my main character. I was going to say, it's film. hard to call him supporting because like... Yeah, yeah. He, like... If if he is considered supporting to Guy, he is the leadest supporting character that, you know, that, that you could have. This movie, I think, will stick with me. I think there's so many strong visuals, but I think in 20 years, I will remember Robert Walker. And I As might the, be like, yeah. yeah, like Guy won't, will possibly fade to, to my you're like he's yeah he's the other guy who's there. You know, he's the Ringo right. star of the Beatles. I'll, 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 I'll get to that here in a minute. <laughs> my best supporting actor i would have picked patricia hitchcock so i love the pick as well but i just want to take the time to shout out to senator morton's character leo g carroll he was awesome like he just has like this presence that you know yeah he's a rich guy we get it like there's something that's so drippingly like personified with his uh with his senator character that i really liked and i'm with you brian he didn't hate a son-in-law or a future son-in-law and that was actually pretty refreshing for for the whole thing so he's actually fond of him so i actually yeah. felt that was really great and Bruno's mom, Mrs. Anthony, Miriam Lauren, she's great. I mean, you know, like even when flat out is like being told her son's murder plan. Oh, that silly boy. <laughs> like... I, I think her first response was, well, did he tell you that he did this? Like it, it's she's just on a different planet. I know she's great. I almost want to do like an episode on like the best cinema moms. She's good. In history. Like. Like I think about that, and then you know I, I'm going to say this, given as much trash as I've talked about the movie over the years, but the mom in Requiem for a Dream, like there are some moms out there in movies that really stick with you. Oh, uh, Brian's for a cooking long... up an idea. Mother's Day, so, top ten yeah, movie mom, my... top ten <laughs> movie moms. <laughs> this is this this goes into the time on Facebook where I posted a picture of Stannis Baratheon after that one season of Game of Thrones, and I said, "Don't forget tomorrow's Father's Day." 
bonus episode, I feel, yeah. in the making. Y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yep. Tyler, hidden gem. I, I've actually got a twofer on this because I, I could not. Is it both a guy she's dating? No, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Are they credited? <laughs> <laughs> cuckold one, cuckold two. <laughs> so I, I, I do have the senator on here. But I, I also wanted to give a shout out to Hennessy on this one, because I, I just love the idea that he kind of became friends with the guy that he was tailing and they just kind of became buddies. Yeah, that's a throwaway character, you would think. But he actually leaves his mark on this film for sure. Yeah. And he's kind of I think it was him. It was either him or the captain. Now I'm getting my characters confused. But at the end, like, I think he was the one that was also like, let's see where this is going rather than arresting him right away i couldn't remember that that might have been the captain actually but uh i don't know he was involved in the plot more than you would think yeah yeah i agree brian hidden gem uh this is where i put patricia hitchcock you took her far down into the list there well here's the thing like i didn't realize who that was until after i had watched the movie and started doing my research on it so it was one of those things like hey one, didn't realize he had a daughter, and two, didn't realize she was acting. So it was a hidden gem for me. Okay. Yeah. I was just like, hey, you know, and it's, this is nothing on her acting. I think she did a marvelous job. Oh, yeah. She's uh, great. I would, I, I, would, I would absolutely put her as a hidden gem and then completely slam it if I was like, and no, <laughs> check, out this, check out this nepotism right here. Hidden gem. Gosh, that was bad. Like, no, it was the opposite. She did a fantastic job. My hidden gem is going to be Jack Cunningham. He coached Farley Granger for the scenes that depicted Guy as being an engaged and realistic looking tennis match for the time. And he also played against his opponent in those scenes, too. So Hmm. getting an actual tennis pro to give validity to it, it did look good. I'm sure tennis has evolved over time, but I I thought the tennis scene was interesting. Dude, wooden rackets are murder. I'm impressed at folks who are able to play with that sort of equipment. It's, It's rough. Exactly. I was a little bit of a throwback to the time there. And I'm not just saying I was interested athletically, just that scene does so much for the suspense of this movie. It, it's great. And another little hidden gem that's in there is uh, when the book that Guy's reading when we first meet Bruno, Bruno on the train is an anthology titled Alfred Hitchcock's Fireside Book of Suspense Stories. So it contains Excellent. stories by Cornwell Woolrich and Robert Block. And those stories contain in them future movies such as Rear Window and psycho nice. so easter egg yeah exactly so things to come even though some of those hadn't i guess psycho hadn't been written yet it was the author who would later go on to write it but still what a fun tie back in history that little book is so brian are you proud of me i pointed out a book we gotta have some variation here man i'm I, i'm psyched <laughs> recast if you had to recast somebody and put somebody else in their place Tyler, who would it be? So this one was a tough one for me. I, as much as I kind of ragged on Guy, I think that was more his characterization than uh, Farley Granger's performance. But I guess if I had to choose somebody, it would probably be be Anne. So Ruth Roman's out. Yeah, R- Ruth Roman out. And, uh, I mean, there, there are so many glam actresses that you could have picked. I'm with you, by the way. Could have picked Hepburn, Jane Manfield, Grace Kelly. You just nailed it. I went Hepburn. She is very pretty. There are so many other actresses if, if you wanted to go glam like Hitchcock did. Yeah. Yeah, this is right before Roman Holiday. So you're getting a young Audrey Hepburn. So I, I would buy her as the senator's art. And you could get her that low enough build in the cast where it's possible. Although to your point, I think Hitchcock had a certain type. And I don't know that she fits his type of woman. I think you were closer to it with James Mansfield. But I don't think she had broken through yet. But still. I don't think Hepburn would have looked like 
Patricia the way. Well, I will tell you this much. Hepburn would have been a better actress. <laughs> so <laughs> I think I think she would have brought a lot more to that role. I think Anne Morton was a little bit wooden. Brian, we didn't get you on this one. Who's your recast? Are you coming after Ruth Roman as well? They can be boring together, man. Okay. Uh, no, I'm actually going after Farley Granger on this. Um, Deserve it. That's fair. Yeah, and, and I'm going to go with one of my homers on this. Uh, I want to see Jack Lemmon in that role. Oh, this, that would improve this a lot. Probably. I, I'm telling you. He, but I don't know that can... I buy him as a tennis champion, though. That that's the problem. Oh, in 1951. I don't know. It's called acting, Russ. You can't have long arms. You can't act your way into long arms. <laughs> so... Hey, listen, if he can play a geriatric golfer, I guarantee you could play a young tennis player. Can I play Michael Phelps then? With CGI, given what it is now, absolutely. <laughs> All right. There's hope for me then. <laughs> now back in spirits within time. Eh. <laughs> we'll deep fake Russ into into michael phelps and that's right yeah i'm five foot eight for all those who uh, need need the visual on that one so uh, it's not uh and i'm not ripped like michael phelps so there you go there you have it so um best shot there are a lot of pretty ones on this by the way tyler best shot we already talked about it it's the the glasses, glasses. Yeah, yeah, a hand reach of that lighter is pretty intense too what about you brian best shot like the great warrior poet nelly once said Sounds nice. Make it twice. Yeah. Glasses. Mine would be the glasses murder scene as well. I have to say, though, the other best shot that I really caught my mind, Hitchcockisms, staircases are apparently a big deal. That scene where there's a guard dog at Bruno's mm. like mansion and like guys there to like presumably murder or to rat him out. I'm, I don't care what I'm there for. I'm out. I see that dog at the top of the stairs. I see that kind of lighting. And I'm just saying, I'm going home. I got this close and I really appreciate Hey, I tried. You know what? I'm okay. Where's my participation trophy? I'm leaving. Like that dog, that was spooky. All I know is if you're out to cause some mayhem and you're not just blindly following a woman and her two boyfriends through a circus, <laughs> bring a milk bone with you, dude. Like be prepared. Like you went into that real blind, like can't carry him up. Yeah. He pet him with his way out of there. Like, hi dog. Yeah. Like, It doesn't work that way. So hey, hey, listen, there are dog people out there. Don't show fear. Don't look away. Don't show signs of, you know, subservience. Guy's just too boring to eat. Guy is just too boring to eat. You're not doing anything. Best scene, Tyler. I originally had the uh, the fight on the carousel and the, its eventual collapse, but the more we've talked about it, I honestly think it, the entire murder scene, like just the following, the I think that that was just a, almost like a masterclass. It's a great one. Brian, how about you? The maniacal painting reveal when the mom shows <laughs> that painting and he's like, ah! <laughs> it looks just like dad. And she's like, Oh, I was painting what was like St. Peter or something. St. Anthony. Like that. I'm still yeah. like, yeah, I was still like, uh, that's a miss. That's <laughs> a miss. St. Peter's not comfortable in that picture. So right. sorry, St. Saint, Saint Anthony. Right. Sorry. But I also, uh, but I also thought to myself, like, I'd hang that up. So. <laughs> it was good. I mean, it was just, yeah. it was, it was a like for Halloween. Toss that up yeah. in your living room. I don't want one in my living room. I just There's think, definitely think some mental good. health that runs in the family. I'm just saying. Yeah yeah my best scene is going to be meeting guy and bruno on the train it just was so good i mean like right away it made chad uncomfortable in minutes and that's ex that's impressive so best wardrobe or makeup moment tyler so i i originally had barbara's glasses but now all i'm picturing it actually goes hand in hand with brian reveal of the painting 
just that robe that Bruno always wore when he was home. I don't know why that sticks in my head so much when the glasses are... It's leisure suit Larry, man. The, the glasses are so much more plot specific, but I don't know. I just picture Bruno in that robe. It's the arrogance of his uh, character that he feels that yeah. in control. Like he's at comfort. I know it's, it's perfect. Brian, what about you? Uh, same thing. I mean, he's living that Hefner life. <laughs> like that's, he's, he's, he's living that life. Yeah, I did not go with Barbara's glasses. I actually chose to go with Miriam's glasses. We see the, the, the first murder in, but it's interesting. Casey Rogers had perfect vision at the time. And those are very thick glasses that she has to wear as Miriam. And she was very blind and had to be guided around. So who knows? Maybe the second date was simply a function of like, okay, I need somebody to just walk along to keep, make sure, you know, Casey doesn't fall over when she's playing this part. Like, it's like, what are we going to do with the other guy that's just holding Casey up? Let's just not talk about him. I, I wanted to bring up one other thing, and I meant to do this back in cast, but since we just talked about, you know, leisure suit and whatnot, the entire movie, once you realize that he comes from money, he reminds me so much of Fernand Mondego from Count of Monte Cristo. Interesting. Yeah. Because he also formulates a plot where he kills the lead investigator's dad for him, and the lead investigator kills his father, so he inherits his family's wealth. Like the, this whole plot is is basically from Count of Monte Cristo, and Bruno is Mondego. Change one thing, Tyler. This was a tough one because as we talked, like the the runtime is so tight. I don't know. We I I'd like to know more about the two guys that she was with. I I, I wish that there was just a little <laughs> bit more. Went down to Subway and said, "You and you." <laughs> it's interesting though you don't have marilyn monroe playing this character like she's like she's pretty i don't get how like she, they act like she all she has to do is like go like shake her hip like once and like you're mine it's the 50s like, man I and, guess, and, I, an, and an eyebrow hey you must be girls yeah it's like <laughs> i'm a girl i have certain anatomy Ooh, <laughs> i am interested Go on. I'll court, <laughs> Go on. I'll, I'll court you. Would you like to court me with another guy at the same time? Yes. Go on. Is it a deal breaker? I sure. <laughs> All right, Brian. Change one thing. In the end, it ends up looking like sage understanding, but I felt like throughout this movie, the cops were dumb as bricks. Like it, it really bothered me for a really long time. I was like, "Oh, I'm getting friendly, like actual friendly with the suspect," and and they lose him a plethora of times that work out for a plot driving point. But I'm telling you, if it ended up being guy in the end, all of them would have been fired. Like they were all negligent to the point of absurdity. So yeah, I I I guess I needed a little bit more sharpness to the detectives, even if they keep the point of them holding back and holding back and holding back until later. Or if you have that one guy who's just eagle instincts, no, he's not guilty and has to figure out what he's going to figure out. Like that's fine, but it doesn't show out through the whole movie. It, it, it looks more like ignorance and buffoonery until the end. I, it's a fantastic point. And I have to say, I think I found mine on the show. I came in with this one blank. I rarely do this. I rarely come in underprepared, but I did not have a change one thing, but I do have one now and talking to you guys. I would say make Anne a sweetheart, make her very likable so that you are more concerned with what's happening for Guy. I can deal with Guy being a little bit like, oops, I've stumbled in this situation. Maybe he's not perfectly likable. Otherwise he wouldn't be in this situation. He'd just be like, don't talk to strangers, short movie. So, um, you know, I think, but if you make Anne 
a very warm character that we are concerned about, that could go a long way. So best quote, Tyler. Uh, I'm going to keep on, on the Barbara, Barbara train. She, she has so many good uh, one-liners, mostly roasting uh, her dad. But I, I just this is a line I feel like probably was written by Chandler if there was anything left over from what he wrote. But I like her quote. I still think it'd be wonderful to have a man love you so much he'd kill for you. Mm, that's a good one. But that was one of those where I was like, yeah. My best quote is when Bruno says, your wife, my father, crisscross. Like that, that crisscross is just very creepy. But it's said so casually. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's everything he says is so relaxed. It's wonderful. Absolutely. Brian, best quote. From what I hear, she's pursued it all in all directions. <laughs> it's very fitting. You know what? I initially was thinking I might change the fact that she's got two dates, but I've had so much fun talking about it. I think I'm going to really remember that from this movie, and I've enjoyed talking to you two about it so much. I wouldn't dare change it. It's hilarious. It just makes it that much more shameless. So, Tyler, thank you so much for coming on the show with us. We really appreciate you coming here and joining us. So remind everybody again where they can see the after the credits reviews. Uh, so that would be on YouTube. I'm also going to be starting a TikTok as well, doing the same thing. Going go much more uh, video now. Crisscross TikTok. We've come full circle on a five-star scale with half-star intervals. Tyler, what would you rate Strangers on a Train from 1951? Just talking about it with you guys bumped it up a half. I'd probably give it four and a half. That's a great choice there. Yeah, Brian, how about you? What's your five-star scale, half-star intervals rating? This is a solid four-star movie. I'm definitely planning on watching this again. I'm not sure where I would rank it on my all-time Hitchcock films, uh, but Ooh. I think it would probably make top five. I'd say that's part of the essential catalog. I'm joining Tyler in the 4.5 Club, and given that I'm new to this one, I always say this when I come to one and I like it at that 4.5 level. It might have room to grow over time. We shall see. So rewatchability and the ability to share it with others that you enjoy it sometimes will take it to that five level. So 4.5 is where I'm landing. Brian, do you want to help me select a movie for next time? All right, guys. Well, Chad is smiling. It's October time and Halloween season. So we've got option one, Nightmare on Elm Street. Teenager Nancy Thompson must uncover the dark truth concealed by her parents after she and her friends become targets of the spirit of a serial killer with a blade glove in their dreams. In which if they die, it kills them in real life. Option two, the fog. An unearthly fog rolls into a small coastal town exactly 100 years after a ship mysteriously sank in its waters. Option three, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Kids all over America want silver shamrock masks for Halloween. Dr. Daniel Chalice seeks to uncover a plot by the silver shamrock owner, Connell Cochran. What are we doing? Well, not Halloween Let's go with, uh, I know this is going to be a pleasing one for Chad, one of his favorite movies of all time. He is indeed smiling at October time. It is Nightmare on Elm Street. Let's do with that. I, I'm curious. Have we done Halloween 1 and 2? I, Halloween 3. 1, yes. Like, yeah. Halloween was one yeah. of the first ones we've ever covered, but yeah. Okay. It's just so weird to have like, how, like okay, classic, Halloween 3. <laughs> <laughs> Tyler, thank you for coming on the show. We appreciate you coming out, man. Thank you for having me. Thank you all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. 
Give us a like on Facebook, Instagram, follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free. So we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable. All contributions are much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian? Ah, Maggie, in the world of advertising, there's no such thing as a lie. There's only the expedient exaggeration.